Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. There are probably very few subjects in the world, perhaps except for Roe v. Wade these days, but in general, probably very few subjects in the world that are more contentious than Israel. Even people that typically agree about Israel, you raise something with them and they can find themselves having a huge conversation or argument or whatever, but especially with people who disagree, parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren, left and right, liberals and conservatives, Israelis and Jews, you name it. Um, there's nothing like Israel to kind of bring out not only this agreement, but kind of toxic disagreement and the ability to have a conversation with each other. Uh, we're speaking today with someone for whom I have an enormous amount of regard, who's been a friend for a very long time, Abby Dauberstern. Abby is the co-author with Robbie Greengrass uh, of a brand new book called Stories for the Sake of Argument. Stories to get you arguing with your family, friends, and community, and that's a good thing. So For the Sake of Argument is obviously a play on For the Sake of Heaven in Jewish life, because that's a very famous Talmudic phrase. Um, so before we get started, just a brief word about Abby. Abby has worked in the United States and in Israel as an educator, as an organizational leader for more than 20 years. She had a very senior position at Hillel International in Washington, D.C. Then she and her husband and kids made Aliyah, and she worked for a while, a long while actually, at the Jewish Agency for Israel's Makom Israel Education Lab, where Abby Greengrass, your co-author, also works. And um, because of who you are, you have relationships that kind of span the globe. It's hard to find a place in the Jewish world that you're not uh, very well known. So we are delighted. I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to you about the book. Thanks for doing it. Great to be here. And Mazal Tov on the book. That's exciting. It is very exciting. It's really cool. And <laughs> it's a gorgeous you. book. People can't see it. But in addition to everything else, it's an unbelievably beautifully designed book. It was designed here in Israel? It was, yeah. It's amazing. It's a, it, well, people will take a look. Um, in any event, before we get started and talk about the book itself, which I um, spent, I was in the company of the book for a wonderful Shabbat afternoon a few weeks ago, and a long Shabbat afternoon this time of the year, so I had a chance to make my way through it. It's great. Um, these ideas of writing stories to pe teach people how to argue, uh, where did this all come from? I mean, what, what, I'm sure there are multiple moments in your life when you began to gather steam and you said, oh, we need to do this, but... What's going on out there that made you think yes. we need to write this book? Yes. So um, it's great to be here. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit, like you said, about where does this book come from? Uh, the ideas, well, first, we'll start with the basics of, of stories. Why stories in the first place? My co-author, Robbie Gungrass, um, who's a super creative educator um, and experiential in the way he teaches things, um, 
himself as an actor and playwright. And so stories are part of who he is. And it started very much from a place of, well, that's what I do, is I write stories. And he had played with some of these ideas before. But more deeply than that, the, the question of why, why arguments? We could write all sorts of stories. Why stories that people should argue over? Um, what we discovered in several different places was that perhaps the hardest thing for people to do, especially young people, say 30s and, and under, um, the, the, among the hardest things to do is to argue and to argue well. And so what we've discovered... Why is that? Why is that? Why is that a generational thing? Um, I believe it's a generational thing because people are used to tweeting, um, oh. to WhatsApping, to Snapchatting, um, Instagramming, which requires no words, just pictures. Uh, right. So the fewer words you have... Okay, so um, it's a generational thing of emojis and 200 or whatever characters on Twitter. Maybe they exchanged it or not, or whatever it is. Um, okay, so these people just don't know how to have an argument. Okay, go on. Um, that's one reason. The other reason, uh, which is maybe more interesting, is there's this thing called safe space um, that's become very important on particularly college campuses, but youth movements and many different organizational settings. Um, creating a safe space, a place where people feel comfortable to speak with one another, to be in community together, is an important modality that people use. Um, and the cost, it seems, or one of the costs of these safe spaces is there are certain guidelines in safe spaces that prevent real exchange of ideas. And one of those guidelines that we're quite responsive to in this, in, in, in this book and in the way we're thinking about arguments is there's a rule or guideline for safe spaces, which is called say yes and. If you say something, Danny, that I don't particularly agree with, I'll say yes and dot, dot, dot. And every time I hear that, right, I say that, what do you mean yes and? I mean no but. I don't mean yes and. Well, whoever came up with yes and, and I have no idea who it was, it's, clearly never studied Talmud. Correct. Yes and comes from um, improvisation. Oh, okay. Um, so right when you, imp when you improvise, you actually change the subject. You start off talking about one thing and you say yes and, and then you can change the okay. topic. And that was adopted, has been adopted to safe spaces. Now it is very useful in when you want to avoid an argument. But if you actually want to disagree with somebody, because you want to, you do disagree with somebody, there isn't, isn't appropriate language for it. Hmm. And so what's happened is, in especially these sort of young, quote-unquote, young people um, have gotten used to these safe spaces where they always say yes and. They're taught not to say no but. And this is also a response to that, to say, actually, how do we say no but in a, in a productive, respectful way? Um, the other anecdote I'll tell about where this book came from, or the moments it really became solidified, was Ravi and I were teaching a group of Moisha House residents. Moisha House um, is an organization that has um, young adults who live together in, in apartments and community, and, and, and they're paid, essentially, or they're given some funding to run Jewish programming. And they have a guideline for their houses. They're pluralist. Um, so people have many different Shabbat practices, among other practices, obviously. Um, and if I encounter somebody who's doing something on Shabbat that I don't understand... And I ask them, as a Moshe House resident, if I were one, and I ask them, why, why do you do that on Shabbat? And the other person, you know what, just really didn't want to talk about it. And I just, just leave me alone. They say, Shabbos yo. Shabbos yo. And that's the indication. I don't want to talk about it. Just accept me as I am. So yo, the one yo hand, comes from what? No idea. Yo, just like hipster language. I don't know. Okay. Yo. All right. Whatever. Yo, yo man. You know. Um, and so it's a, it's a conversation stopper. It's saying, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to get into the complicated stuff. When Robbie and I began teaching this group of Moisha Housers, 
about Israel and we wanted them to run programs, we brought a few small stories that we wanted them to discuss. And there was complete silence in the room. Nobody would talk. And Robin and I looked at each other, how can they not be talking? These things are, are volatile and, and other people would be screaming. Why are they so quiet? And um, we realized that the culture of Shabbosio is one where we just don't talk about how we're different, how we're different. And so um, we joke, or our friend Lauren Cohen-Fisher joked at the time, she was with us as an educator, Israel, oi, take the yo and turn it around, it becomes oi. And so we wanted to get into that. Wow. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the generation of the book and how long you worked on it and if you test some of it out yeah. there and how it all came to yeah. be. Yeah. So... Um, like many things over the last two years, we started, you know, during COVID, um, amazingly enough, um, and I was working, it was written while I was still working at Macomb at the Jewish agency. And there were some funds left from another grant from the Jim Joseph foundation. And they asked what I'd like to do with it. And this is one of the things I pitched and they said, sure, go ahead, go, go write this thing. Um, and I started writing, this is my fun anecdote is I started writing when I was in quarantine with my then nine-year-old daughter and I was sleeping on the bottom bunk bed for 11 nights. And I started writing. And Ravi and, Ravi and I would write stories. She was on an iPad, of course, and I was sitting typing away. Um, uh, but Ravi and I would write stories and send them back to each other and, and talk over them. Um, from start to finish, it took about a year and a half um, to get out. And some of the, there were maybe two stories that existed beforehand that Ravi had written as part of other stuff that we said, wow, these really work right here. Um, and so that's where they came from. Okay, now people are hearing short stories, so they're probably thinking like, oh, Henry, or, you know, there's a 30-page short story, or, you know, whoever, Hemingway wrote some short stories. This is not that. Not that you guys aren't as talented as oh, Henry or Hemingway, right. but um, <laughs> these short stories are actually a page and a half or yes. two pages. And yeah. they are, when you say short, you really mean short. And what I was so struck by when I read these stories and read the book was that these stories are unbelievably quick and yet they do manage to pack in there so many issues of judgment and morality and caring and concern and you know it depends on which story you're talking about it's fascinating like a, a, a tiny little anecdote can really pack a huge punch as people begin to talk about it so we'll talk about how people are supposed to use the book but first let's talk about there's three different kinds of stories in the book and they are all color-coded. So I'm going to go to the table of contents here for a second to remind myself. So um, blue ones are warm-ups, and yellow ones are allegory, and red ones are Israel. Mm-hmm. Or red, pink, I don't know, something. Um, what's the difference between an allegory and an Israel and a warm-up? How are people supposed to use these stories differently? And then you have other stuff, too. You can talk about, like, there's guiding questions, and there's background, and there's questions for further exploration. And, all right, so there's a story. Tell us about the three yeah. kinds of stories, and then what kind of materials people find with each of these stories, and what do they do with it? Great. Um, so the warm-ups are usually very light. They're issues that aren't particularly contentious. So one of the lightest stories is called the cat lady and the cat lady is a woman who lives on a moshav in an israeli town um and she feeds all the cats and then more cats come and the, this yeshuv gets very um upset that there are these cats and what do they do do they this poor lady who this is these are her only friends the cats do they tell her she has to stop feeding them or actually we say yeah this makes the woman happy we should let her feed them so it's not a particularly contentious issue unless you live there perhaps but if you're just a normal person it's not something that's going to get you you don't have probably particularly ideological political 
um, leanings. By the way, I don't think it's a moshav. I, I don't know any Israeli neighborhood that doesn't have a cat lady. The cat lady here lives right around the corner, down the street. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Indeed. Um, I, I've taken pictures of them in the street occasionally, just as... You know, right, to just to remind ourselves yes. that it's a real thing. Okay, yeah. so... The, um, the, the, the so those thing. are the warm-ups that, that, particularly if you're using this in a group setting, which is how the book is intended, um, if you don't want to get to something too contentious, the warm-ups are good to get people just used to the idea that we're going to disagree and we'll have different takes on something and, and to sort of... The stretching up. before your workout. Yep, it, that's a great analogy. They're also good for younger kids. Um, so this book is good, in general, we say high school and up, um, but... There are a few stories that younger kids can access, and the warm-ups are generally ones that younger kids can access. So if you're having, this, say, a conversation at your Shabbat dinner like I do, and I, my youngest is seven and my oldest is 15, the seven-year-olds can also do the warm-ups, and so it, it, it's useful for that purpose. The allegories um, are allegories are just that. There are stories that you have to know that they're about Israel to know that they're about Israel. There's a story about, say, um, called the, the Brother's House. There's a story about two brothers um, who inherit a family home one brother lives abroad, and one brother lives where the family home is. The brother who lives abroad pays for um, all sorts of um, upkeep of the house. And then when the brother who visits the actual house, he's very upset to see what his brother has done with the family home. And of course that, if you think about it, and if you read the background that we provide, is an allegory for Jews living outside of Israel and Jews living in Israel and the relationship that we have and the tensions of who gets to decide and who gets, who, who gets to have opinions, etc., um, but that's an allegory. And the purpose of the allegories is that we think it, it really helps um, get us out of uh, very fixed thinking. If you're right. first you know, thinking about an, an analogous case before you're getting into the actual case, it's interesting to test whether your, your ideas shift and change, your opinions shift and change when you, when you switch. So that's a different Right. Is it really both people's home? Right. right. One person lives there, one person doesn't, but sends money. Uh, what makes something a person's home and all that kind of stuff without ever talking about Israel and politics and all of that kind of stuff. Right. And when we've led workshops, we often lead those twice, right? We'll lead it once with the, the plain meaning the, um, of the story. And then we say, okay, now here's the allegory. Now let's talk about, you know, can argue over it in terms of the, the, in, in the allegorical I'd imagine the most time, by the time you get to college or even high school, people get exactly what the allegory is an allegory too, right? I mean, they, they get it. Especially because it's in this book and it's all about Israel. Right. <laughs> yes, for sure. But it does sometimes help to try and keep people in, the, in that plain meaning. But it's interesting, by the way, now that you mention it, the word Israel doesn't appear on the cover. Yes, I'm sure that's purpose. not accidental, right? On purpose. Um, and I'll get back to the Israel Category. Yeah, we'll come back to the category in um, Israel. The reason we didn't mention Israel is because um, the vision of this work, um, both the book and, and what we're working on now, is that we help people um, learn all matters, learn and discuss all matters of complexity. So that's going to have to do with American politics. That's, you know, slavery in the U.S. Um, not that we can excuse slavery, but we can explain it in ways historically. And how do we teach it and how do we talk about it? Um, all sorts of complex issues of, of history and current events um, need a new way to be taught. Um, a way to engage with differently. And so this is, um, our, our starting point was Israel because it's what we know best, but we hope to expand to other subject matters as well. Got it. I mean, Israel is all over the book. There's no mistake. Yeah, this of is course it's about Israel. About, yeah, of course it's about Israel. Okay, so we have the warm-ups, we have the allegories, and then we get to the ones in red, Very which Israel. means, you know, I don't know, this is getting serious. It's right. about the Israel ones. And how are these different from the uh, allegories? So especially given that you've said they're all about Israel, um, the ones that, are, that, we, that we label as Israel are the ones that are the most hot-button issue um, issues that get right to the heart of um, the, the most challenging. Um, to give us two or three issues. examples. Yeah. So, um, a an Palestinian resident of East Jerusalem um, trying to decide whether or not to vote in municipal elections in Jerusalem. Um, without getting into the, the details here, um, 
residents of East Jerusalem do not cannot vote in national elections in Israel, but can vote in municipal election, elections. Generally, the population does not vote, and this is a story of someone's individual um, uh, struggle with should she vote or should she not vote. Which is um, very real because they are actually struggling with that much more than they used to. It used to be pretty much carte blanche; they didn't vote, and little by little by little, they're beginning to actually participate in the political yeah. process. And that story, in particular, by the way, we had a Palestinian resident of East Jerusalem read to make sure that we had understood the nuances as well. Um, so that's one example. Another example is a um, uh, visit to, to Safta, um, which is a story about a, a granddaughter visiting her grandmother in Haifa, and she visits on Shabbat, and she usually takes buses because there are buses in Shabbat, on Shabbat in Haifa. Um, but the issues of buses on Shabbat in this country is one that's, um, that's often argued over and comes up in elections and comes up at, diff- at different points um, because it's a Jewish country. Should we, should we really have buses on Shabbat? Should we, what, what, should, what standards of being a Jewish country should we have? And so that's very much, again, at the heart of some of the issues that come up here in Israel. And it's a story about, about that question and that struggle. Right, and the grandmother, if I remember correctly, doesn't want her to take the bus. She does not want her to take the bus. She wants, but she's okay with her taking taxis, actually. Right, yeah, right. And so there's a distinction there between individual choice and national decisions that we, we try and get into through that story. Right. Ironically, of course, the taxi is something that fewer people can afford. Bus is something that everybody can afford. So you also get into disparities in wealth become part of the usual discussion of Shabbat and all of that. Yeah. Um, all right. So they're, they're amazing. They are really short. I don't know how many words there are. There must be like a couple hundred words from something yeah. like that. Um, yeah. Not a lot. And then after each story, there's, let's just call it stuff. So tell us a little bit about the stuff yeah. that you guys provide after each story. Yes. So first, there are discussion questions. So um, as this book is really, as I said, intended for, for groups, um, small and large, to talk about um, the stories, we give, we give some guiding questions for people to, to, get into, to help them get into um, some of the issues that we're raising through the stories. Um, and then we have background material. Where does the story come from? Um, all the stories, whether true or allegorical, um, come either from an actual real example that happened that we're just retelling in a story, in a way, you know, as a story. Um, or they come from, um, you know, an allegory, issues that have come up, but we want to explain what that allegory is. Um, uh, or it's a conglomerate of several stories that we've put together. And so we give the background, um, we give some of the political history, we give some of the cultural history. Sometimes we make comparisons to other countries, the United States, etc. Um, when land, issues of giving, of land, taking over land, um, in one story, we compare um, uh, Mexico and, and, and Texas. Um, and so th- that's what the background is, to help enlighten um, and give a little depth to the story. Um, and I'll just add that one of the goals of the background um, is, or the goals of the book, right, is both to teach how to argue, but is also to teach about Israel. Yeah. And it's in those background pieces that once you've read the story, what we're seeing is that people are like, oh, I'd really actually like to understand that. Why is it that way? And then they have a short, again, page and a half, two pages of some background that teaches them about Israel. Right. It's fascinating because we really are having these conversations or arguments about Israel almost entirely unencumbered by any knowledge whatsoever. Uh, no, I mean, seriously, people just don't know the history of how mm-hmm. a certain thing started or why it started. And there's always good reasons for things happening and very bad reasons for things happening and justifiable things and unjustifiable things. But they did happen for a reason. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't make them right or wrong, but it just means you kind of, kind of know when it started, how it started, etc., etc., etc. There's a reason that people in East Jerusalem can vote in municipal elections, but not in national elections. There's a reason that Israel captured Jerusalem in the Six-Day War, but gave the WAP control over the Temple Mount. Some people think it was a terrible mistake. By the way, Moshe Dayan is the one that did it. The left, um, but etc., etc., etc. And I think, you know, in the work that we both do, we see whenever we're talking about Israel, there's just a tremendous void in terms of what people know. So even if it's only a couple of pages here, 
you're at least introducing this idea that yeah, you might want to actually sort of know what what happened. And and that is, by the way, another you know to go back to the first question, another place where this book came from. When you asked me where did this book come from, is very much the acknowledgement and, and awareness that. Um, most people don't know history, don't don't have content, um, and they're not necessarily interested in learning it. Mm-hmm. And so as educators, one of our questions is, how do we get people to be more interested? And what we realized is actually the things we argue about are the things we're most passionate about. And once we can harness that passion, um, there people might be more likely to learn. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's sort of what we're trying to do here is we'll read a short story and then we'll give you a little bit of information or maybe we'll give you a little bit of information and then read the short story. You can do it sort of, you can read it the other way also, but um, that, that's part of what we're... But then you have your phone right next to you and you can start Googling and find out that there's a whole world out there of information and so on and so forth. So how, uh, how long has the book been out? About eight weeks, I think. Eight weeks, so two months-ish. Yeah. yeah. And what are you hearing from the field? Gosh, um, well, one is we got a grant of over a million dollars from the Jim Joseph Foundation um, to develop this book further, to develop the pedagogy, to research how this idea of what I call teaching towards the argument rather than teaching towards the consensus, how that idea works, in what ways does it work, how does it change the way we have conversations, how does it change the way we teach, um, et cetera. So one is funding. That's one big thing that you know from the field, and it's really funding for the idea for developing this idea. Um, but also how it's being used. And um, we've probably trained close to 200 people at this point. This point, Very sh- short trainings. We've had you know, two to four sessions um, with educators of all kinds. Um, and people are start. sounds like they're starting to use it. They're using it in their Hebrew schools. Um, a, group of from, a group from Hillel um, will be using, um, on different campuses, they'll be using the stories in the context of their work on campus. I've uh, got a JCC that wants to create a citywide um, reading group around this book as a way of engaging around the stories. Um, so people are using it in very different ways. Moshe House using it yet? Um, Moshe House is going to be here in Israel, in, I think, in the next few weeks. And Robbie will be leading a seminar for them, which will include this book. So yes. Because it'll be really interesting to see how they incorporate this book into their thinking about teaching along with the Shabbos Yo thing. Yes. Because right? it's, it's, it's directly in contradiction to one of the tenets of their ways of having discourse. It'll be really interesting to see. Really interesting. Um, I will say that, not Moishe House, but another um, educator that, that was in a training we did, after we taught this this um, yes and, you know, or, and no but, use no but instead of yes and, she said to, to us after the first session that she went back and used it with her um, professional team, her staff, they were so used to saying yes and, and she finally looked at them and said, say no but when you disagree, just tell me you disagree. Um, and she said it was the most useful thing she learned from the whole training. So, well, that's great. Sometimes those little, just little tricks, you know, or how you express yourself changes the conversation. Well, rhetorical, the rhetoric we use increasingly, um, I mean, it's always been true, but especially now, there's so much rhetoric that we use that obfuscates. And I think one of the things we're trying to do is actually name when it's hard, name when there's a conflict, name when you're conflicted. It's okay if you're conflicted, right? right. You don't just need to speak in the platitudes or in the um, generalizations. Yeah, there's that old joke that people have told a thousand times about the rabbi's notes that are found on the lectern at the end of Shabbat services. And they see that somebody sees it in the margin, he or she has written, point weak here, yell like hell, right? <laughs> you know, so the point is, you know, we, we, we don't want to acknowledge that this part of our argument is not the strongest mm-hmm. or that whatever. And that's why, like, when I said Talmud, you know, when we were talking about our, our, the beginning of our conversation, 
I mean, very often what Rabbi X is asked in response to Rabbi Y's claim, which differs from his, is, well, what's strongest about his claim? Like, what would you say about, not why are you right or why are you wrong, but his particular, that plank of his, and unfortunately it's always, or almost always his, but, you know, that particular plank of his argument, what do you mm -hmm. say about that? Mm -hmm. Like, there's nothing mm -hmm. that you've said addresses that in a kind of way of pulling apart the rubrics here. Um, so before we um, wrap up, I want to, first of all, I want to ask you one question, but before we do that, I want to tell you, how do they get this book? What do they do? Amazon. Oh, I've um, heard of that. They have that in America it's now, on, right? It's on Amazon. Sorry, we're not yet at independent booksellers as much as we'd like to be, um, but right now we're on Amazon, and if you're in Israel, you can get the book, um, go to our website and their instructions. And the website is forthesakeofargument.org, right? Yep. With lots of background stuff. Okay, so it's easy to get, and... Um, Probably not a lot of people listening to this who haven't used Amazon within the last couple of hours. Okay, um, so I want to ask you the one question people are probably scratching their heads and saying, this is really cool, right? So Abby and or Robbie are going to go to Moshe House, or they're going to sit with a Hillel group, and they're going to sit with a Shul, they're going to sit with the JCC, they're going to, and they are going to make headway here with certain kinds of people. But they say, but the, the larger environment is so toxic is so shut down. And it's not only about Israel now. I mean, now everything has become, we can't talk about it. And when I go to the States, I just find nobody talks about anything anymore. Mm -hmm. Because people either are going to exactly mimic each other, in which case, what's the point of talking? Um, or they're so afraid of offending or be offended. But I just find nobody, they talk about, yes. not, not like here in Jerusalem, we have these, you know, sort of banging on the table conversations with our friends all the time. Yes. Um, can, this, can, can this be changed? Oh, gosh, that requires a big sigh. Um, I think we're all asking ourselves that about a lot of things these days of what can be changed. How do we change it? So, um, I'm going to leave inflection points for changing it if we can. Yes. So I'll first say there are a lot of people working on issues relating to dialogue, to community building, to bridge building in the Jewish community, in the, in the general world. Um, I could list off authors and groups and organizations that are, that are doing related work. Um, and so... My hope is that the fact that there are so many together, collectively, we will make a dent. Um, and I'd say we're, what we're trying to do, um, we've taken a sort of narrower lane or a very specific area to try and make a dent, because I agree with you, to, to imagine changing all of that um, feels rather daunting. We're focused very much on educational settings. Education, broadly, broadly speaking, could be formal education as in schools, but also informal as in youth movements and, and camps. But one of the questions that we're asking, which I think is, is different than a lot of people, is um, not just how do we have conversations across political and ideological divides, um, not just how do we build community and, and um, stop polarization, which I want to do all of that, but what we're really asking is how do we teach material that inherently um, is conflictual? How do we teach that material and not avoid that material, but actually how do we engage with that material? With the deep belief that if we engage with that material and model it in educational settings, it will change the way people ultimately in the long term um, are able to, to, to talk about difficult issues. Um, and it's also very much addressing the question of just how do we teach, period, mm -hmm. um, which is also in, in deep trouble today. I mean, education is really struggling on many, many levels. Um, particularly after COVID, but also for other reasons. And so one of the things that we're also trying to do is trying to invent um, a new way to teach at least some material. And so we're hoping to make a dent in the educational world, um, which feels slightly more manageable than the whole world, but only slightly. But it's also key to the whole world. I mean, yes. uh, people learned to not have arguments somewhere. Yes. So if those sources where they learned not to have arguments, I mean, when colleges have safe spaces, 
what they're saying basically is the place that you go for four years, which should be the epitome of your engaging with tough issues, is now a place where you can escape tough issues. When you give trigger warnings for the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Bible, yes. which have very painful, what you're saying is that basically you should be able to read books and not engage with pain, which to me is exactly the opposite of the reason that the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Bible all exist, because we're supposed to encounter those things. And they can be very painful because we can have issues in our own lives that... These things really do bring up, and it can be agonizing. But when that becomes a reason for entire swaths of society not to talk about anything that matters, uh, we're not going to make the change in the whole world that we need. It's actually worse than that about trigger warnings. I was just reading an article, the, the, pre, the article by Jonathan Haidt, and I forget the name of his co-writer, for, um, but it was preceding Coddling of American Mind that they wrote. And he talks about that this whole trigger warning um, uh, idea started well trigger warnings are, are are really important for people who've suffered from from post-traumatic stress disorder um what turns out is they've taken the language or the, they culturally we've taken the language of, of ptsd and of trigger warnings and applied it to everything right. that if i feel hurt you shouldn't talk about it and actually what that's done um in some ways on mass is it's made us overly sensitive and unable to cope when when we're feeling a little hurt and so it's, it's shut people down increasingly. And one of the things that we need to do is find ways of actually bringing back some of the hard material and helping people hold the hurt because that's actually how real life is. Right. And also, by the way, it cheapens the genuine trauma yes. that PTSD yes. is all about. Yes. I mean, when those, God forbid, we don't even have to mention them, but those kinds of things happen, that's very different from the yeah. normal everyday, I'm going to be uncomfortable if we talk about this, or even yes. very upset when we talk about this. I and mean, we've seen wonderful movies. They can leave us harrowingly upset. That's not about trigger warnings because that's the whole point of the movie is to make us rethink that. Yeah, I mean, it's really true. I, th I thought it was very interesting here in Israel. You probably remember this because we're talking in June and so Yom Asmut was a month and a bit ago when in Tel Aviv they decided, and a few other cities, they decided not to have fireworks Yes. because there were soldiers who said that the fireworks brought back explosions and this. And I was actually struck by how in this country where Yom Asmut, Independence Day, is a really serious thing and... People are not, I did not think people were going to take kindly to tempering their celebration. The cities responded. They yeah. had regions of the city without fireworks. They, they, there were places that if you wanted to celebrate Yom Ha'atzma'ut outside with thousands of people and not hear fireworks, that you could go. Yeah. And I thought that was actually kind of amazing. And that's kind of taking what's a genuine trigger, what's a genuine PTSD thing seriously right. without cheapening it by making it too broad. But um, to go back to the original issue, we don't know how to argue with each other anymore. We're afraid of offending people. We're afraid of treading on toes. And so in a world in which so much is at stake, liberal democracy, democracy in general, the respect for the individual, the gender issue, the you, you name it, um, we need more than ever to talk about things. And this is a book that for those people who are fortunate enough to see it, read it, use it, uh, it can make an enormous amount of difference. So to both you and Robbie, who I've also known for many years, thank you for writing such a great book. Thank you. Can I end with a quote by Ian Leslie? You can. Um, who wrote a book called Conflicted. And he said, rewrote, the only thing worse than having toxic arguments is not having arguments at all. Which is exactly where we're at, which is exactly why the book's so important. Stories for the sake of argument... Stories to get you arguing with your family, friends, and community, and that's a good thing, as Abby noted, available on Amazon by Robbie Greengrass and Abby Dauber Stern. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. 
If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.